I've known preachers who have preached in wheelchairs. I have a missionary friend who is blind, and he preaches. Um, many a minister will preach with a hearing aid. I've preached on crutches before when I broke my heel. I've got a really raspy voice this morning, but I do have a voice. And I think God has something in store for us, uh, or else I would have probably handed it off this morning. And so it's a little bit ironic that I'm talking about a cheerful heart with a raspy voice. But I pray that you can discern from God's word what he has for you this morning, and that it'll be encouragement to your heart. We're in a series this morning where we're looking at the liturgy of the church. And the word actually appears in our text this morning in verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. The word for service is the word that we get the word liturgy. It means the order. It means the menu items that we include in our worship service. And every church, if you come from a contemporary worship background, they do have a liturgy. They do have a reason that they do what they do. They have a reason that they have welcome or announcements and call to worship and confession of sin. We've been looking at those things. And this morning we come to why we take up an offering when we meet for worship. There's another word there in verse 12. Ministry. For the ministry of this service. And it really should be for the servants of this service. But the word for ministry is the word for diakonoi. Or the administrators of mercy. Or those men that will oversee the donations, the tithes, the offerings, and encourage a generous, cheerful, giving congregation, that they will oversee that. And so you put those two things together to say that it is in accordance with God's word to take up an offering, however it's done, in the course of the liturgy of the worship service. And that we have men who oversee both the taking in of gifts given to administration, the ministry of God and His kingdom on earth, the taking in, but also the distributing of those gifts. But all the while, they're encouraging and they would join in their ministry with Paul, as we read in verse 7, that this giving is not reluctant. It's not uh, under any compulsion. We're not compelled to give for wrong reasons. For God loves a cheerful giver. Let me ask you this morning as we begin, what cheers you up? What gives you a cheerful heart? What makes you cheerful? Think about it. Now, secondly, what do you think makes God cheerful? What do you think makes those people in our path who are in need, maybe in need of an anonymous offering and gift, what we would call alms, small, humble gifts that we give, 
They don't come into the offering plate. They don't even necessarily cycle through the church. What do you think makes those people in our path who are in need cheerful? Well, it's all here in this text that there's a, a cycle that God gives us resources, possessions, and they do cheer us up. Even in the garden, there is the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion over all the earth. He blessed Abraham. He blessed Moses. He blessed Solomon. There are, God is not um, in any way reluctant or condemning of wealth. He simply says, those things will bring cheer into you, your life. But if they possess your heart such that you hold those things with a tight grip, then you won't be able to give them. You won't be able to release them when a need arises. But if you can take cheer in those things and release them when a need arises, then that gives me a cheerful heart. And the response... The response is that those people in need not only are cheered up by us. Oh, thank you. I have been praying or I have this great need or, or, or want in my life and you've provided it. Oh, thank you. You cheer me up. But they give thanks to God. And we have this cycle. God gives and we take cheer. We give away. God takes cheer. Others receive and they cheer us, they cheer up, they thank us, and a great crescendo of thanks goes up to God, whose hand it originated from. That's where we're going, that's the sermon. I, should, I could stop right here, save my voice, but we need to dig into the text. And I want you to see three things from God's Word. I want to lay the foundation for you this morning. I want you to see the need for bread. What's the need? Why, why, what? Where do our resources go? Or why is there a need for us to have an offering, take up an offering, or give our financial uh, resources? Secondly, where does it come from? The seed for the sower. Thirdly, what's the sower's gospel? In other words, once we receive, once we see the need, and then we start distributing our goods, what keeps that flywheel going? What's the good news that keeps us cheerful and not reluctant or not under compulsion. Let's look at the need. And it's the need is really seen back one chapter in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read these words. And I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take a break. I'm not going to read all five verses here. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Skip. But as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What has happened here is the saints in Jerusalem. The saints in Jerusalem are composed 
primarily of Jewish believers. The saints in Macedonia, very impoverished, persecuted, facing a lot of afflictions, are primarily Gentiles. And the church in Macedonia, when given an opportunity to use their their offerings and their financial resources to assist the church in Jerusalem, said, we are all in. And a verse that I left out is verse 5 of chapter 8, where it says, they did this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. In other words, they have, they're so all in with the Lord that their resources, everything, their time, their talents, and their treasures followed them. But they gave it first to the Lord, and then they trusted us with the distribution of those things. But here's a church that gave not out of its abundance, but out of its poverty. And he uses the church in Macedonia, now talking to the church in Corinth in the first five verses of chapter 9, to say, you don't want to miss out on this. You don't want to miss out on this. You want to experience what this little church in Macedonia is experiencing. Because it's an outflow of the gospel. It's the gospel at work. Nowhere else in society would formerly very successful Jews, now believers in Jerusalem, have any relationship or dealings with impoverished, formerly pagan Gentiles. But look at the gospel. Now, because they've been made rich in Jesus Christ, the church in Macedonia says, not only must we help our brothers, and they are our brothers and sisters, but we have this great desire. And this need has fallen into our path. This need for bread, this need for assistance. And we're we're doing it because God has enriched our lives by the power of His own grace. And they give. And he looks at Corinth and he says, you've got all of these attributes. You're identified as God's people in your faith, you believe. And in your speech, you you talk like sons and daughters. And in your knowledge, you, you know about Jesus Christ. And you're so earnest. And you love us. And you love other people. Don't let this lack, for it is a part of your identity. Cheerful generosity now we are told or we can see in this text that there are at least four ways four things that compel our heart to give four things that compel us to give number one if you look at verse seven he says each one must give as he's made up his mind okay there's a number there's a figure and they're going uh, Jesus Christ had more to say about money than he did anything else. In the Bible, prayer is mentioned and encouraged as a part of our Christian identity and who we are as God's people 500 times. Money and the use of our money to bring glory to God and the service of charity to others 1,500 times. And so... I'm not going to be able to take the time this morning to talk about or even build a foundation for the tithe. 
But the tithe, tithe stands for 10, 10% is the rule of thumb. And it's actually, except for extraordinary circumstances, it's the base. It's the starting point. And so we, as it says in verse 7, we make up our mind as to what our tithe is. And we also make up our mind as far as what offerings or what conditions we may give alms. But it's so easy for it to become a duty, a tax. And therein lies a problem. We begin to stroke a check, and I don't want you to stop, but we stroke a check, and it's just so much of a habit that we no longer can write a check with a prayer of thanksgiving. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I have a church family and that you put me into this family by your cheerful generosity to me with the riches of Christ. And now I'm a part of that church family that I'm able to set apart my tithe, my offering, and my alms to be identified as your family. Think about when you first started to tithe. And that's the neat thing about percentages. One person is not better than the other. But as you make, a, you set apart in your mind, this is what I'm going to give, you have ownership of the ministry. You have, you have, it gives you street cred as a family member. But we don't, and we're not to slip into doing it simply as mere duty. Secondly, we can give for rather selfish reasons. We can give for the self-pleasure. We can give for just a sense of my goodness. Now, again, I pray that you, you experience cheer when you give. God, I'm so thankful that I was able to help this person out who approached me in a parking lot, had a real need, and I had cash in my pocket. And I'm glad. And I just follow that with a prayer. I'm glad, God, that you were able to use me today. That's a good feeling, and that's appropriate. But when we use it to try to build credit with God, to say, there are a lot of things in my life that I don't do, but by the amount that I give or by the frequency that I give, I know that God is going to equalize all things. Thirdly, we can give out of prestige. That is, we give uh, you know, great philanthropy, you know, but you give because you want to put your name on it, or you, you give in order to have the approval or to be desirable by others. But the last reason that he gives is that we would give out of cheerful generosity. That is, that we are compelled by love. Now stay with me. Paul in Deuteronomy, Paul is not saying anything new. In fact, he will quote from Psalm 112 in just a moment in verse 9. Paul is not saying to the congregation in Corinth, which is, they haven't given yet. And it's probably going through their mind that they're very reluctant. You know, we're Gentiles, they're Jews. We got our own needs here in our own church. And Paul is not telling them something new. He's telling them something quite old when he talks to them about the attitude that they're to have toward Monday. Deuteronomy 15, you shall give to him, that is the poor brother, freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. 
because for this the Lord God will bless you and all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. In other words, he's saying that they're poor and they will always be with us. And they're poor who are brethren. They're in our family. And that we are to give to them. But he puts an attitude condition upon it. And he says, without grumbling, with a cheerful heart, with joy. There is an old rabbinic saying that says, if a brother comes to you in need, and you greet him with a cheerful countenance, and you cheer his heart, but you have nothing to give to him, then you've done well. But if he comes to you in need, and you have a grumbling, begrudging countenance, and give him great wealth and resources, you have served him not. And God says they're to be together. They are linked. Now, what's the problem? First Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 has been very, very helpful to me to show me what the problem at heart, at the at, my, at the core of my being, it begins to point out to me the problem that is keeping me from being cheerful in my generosity. Those who, 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. It's almost like it's a cycle of addiction here, but if you look at the word snare, that word is the word that they would use for a noose to capture an animal or perhaps a person. But the way a noose works is that it's rather loose, and once a head or a foot goes into it, it doesn't collapse immediately, but by its own weight, a hanging man, his own weight will break his neck. Um, an animal pulling away with a noose around it, its own weight and its own pull will cause the noose to collapse and hold it fast. Timothy says money can do that. Money can be like a noose around your heart around your attitudes. You can, with money, by your own, the weight of your possessions, it can begin to collapse on you. And it can lead to ruin. It can lead to a craving, like an addict, for more, that you could even wander away altogether from your faith and the demands of your faith. Let me put it to you another way. Think about it as far as a tolerance cycle. You start out and you just have the bare necessities that you can afford. But God blesses. You begin to make more money. You begin to have more resources. And so you add cable. You add a new car. You add a, a, an additional room onto the house. You add the relationship of a mate or a child. You begin to add things that some are really luxuries 
But over time, those luxuries have become necessities such that when we have or we're faced with opportunities to be generous, we're not as cheerful. We don't think we have as many resources as we really do. And that's because what has happened is over time we began to tolerate those luxuries. We began to get accustomed to them such that we label them necessities that we can't do without them. Luke, Jesus Christ, said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Tim Keller talks about doing a, a sermon series on the seven deadly sins. And that when he was preparing to preach on greed, his wife Kathy said, it'll be very, very poor attendance. It'll be one of your lowest attendance ever. And he said, why? And she said, because nobody thinks that they have a problem with greed. No one, has a, no one thinks that they have a problem with that. And then he reflected that in his many years of in doing pastoral counseling, People may come and talk about struggles with, with gossip or lust or pride, but never having a problem with money. And yet Jesus never said, take care about a lustful heart or take care about lying eyes. Take care about a gossiping tongue. But he says, watch out. Take care. Guard. Be on guard against this power of money, this coveting, this holding your possessions very, very tightly. God gives us seed for sowing. Paul knows what he's up against. He knows that the, the heart can begin to wrap itself around possessions and cling to them to feel that we don't have enough to give to other people because we've got all of these things that we've got to sustain. We just can't afford to give. But Paul comes, and if you look in verse 8, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency and all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, God is going to give you seed to sow. God has already given you seed to sow, but God will give you even more to sow. That you may abound. And in the process of abounding, Paul quotes uh, Psalm 112 when he says, He distributed freely, he's given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He says, not only does God provide seed to the sower and he disperses it, but all the while, all the while, he's not just amassing, he's not just amassing more resources in order to be give, to give, but his own heart is being transformed. He's becoming more like, the child is becoming more like a cheerful, generous father. God who gives. Now we can give out of what the Father has given to us, and he's promised to do more, and all the while, we are continuing by sowing the seed that he provides. Our heart is becoming more and more generous, not because of the amount of resources, but because of the growing attitude of cheer, because of the ability to say, wow, 
I am, cheer, I am being made cheerful because you're giving it to me. And now I'm able out of that to give it away. Paul uses the word there, sufficiency in all things. And in the Greek, it's just one word. And the Stoics love this word. Um, and you might say, who are the Stoics? Okay, the Stoics today would always listen to Dave Ramsey. Now, I'm not knocking Dave Ramsey, okay? But the, the Stoics were way into minimalism of life. They were into debt-free. I mean, they were strapped down, ready to go, carry every, got everything I need in a backpack, um, very independent. Paul uses the word that they use, that you, and it's the word autarkia, autarkia. And the word means independent. It also means financially free. Not in debt or great debt. It doesn't mean that you have an abundance of resources, but it means that you have the essentials. You, it's not that you provide for yourself great wealth, but you provide for yourself the essentials, and you can live with less. An autocaria person would be able to live with less. It's not that they finally made it to independence because they have more. It's also the word for content. They're a person that says, I have what I need, and I'm content. And Paul says, when you're like that, when you have what you need with a heart of contentment, then you can look at your stuff and your possessions as that to be generous and to give away. If not, you're going to want to keep it very close. The same word is used in Philippians 4. I have learned in whatever situation to be autarkia, to be content with the essentials. No, really. I, I don't need something new and improved. I don't, I've got the essentials. This, this appliance, this, this possession, I don't have to have these new things. I, I've got the essentials. I've got this, and I'm very content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound, misspelling. What he's saying is, I'm flexible. But in that tolerance cycle, many times when we are brought low, when a financial crisis hits, it's like, oh my gosh, how can I do without these luxuries? Paul would say, I know how to do without those luxuries. And when I'm brought up, I know how to handle those luxuries. Again, that they don't possess my heart. Moving forward. Luke 12. Now, I've just pulled select passages out of Luke 12. It bears reading on a Sunday afternoon. The whole chapter. But look at Jesus in this sermon. In this sermon to people. How he speaks to an attitude of anxiety and worry. Do not be anxious about your life. Consider the ravens. O you of little faith, do not seek, nor be worried. Your Father knows. Seek His kingdom. These things will be added to you. And fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
sell your possessions and give to the needy, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you see what's happening? The problem is not greed. I don't believe that. I, first of all, want to thank you, the congregation of Two Rivers. The ministry of Two Rivers continues to be sustained and goes forward because you are generous. But I wonder, is there any reluctance? Or are you compelled to give simply out of a sense of duty? If there's a, a cheerful attitude, then there will be, you'll know it, because there is a freedom that accompanies that generosity. Because the generosity is an attitude of cheerfulness and love. It's compelled by love. But what we find Jesus saying is, it's not so much greed that keeps you clinging to possessions. It's fear. You're afraid. You don't have faith that I'm going to take care of you in the future. You think one day I, eternal God, your creator and your savior, is I'm going to drop you. You think that. Fear not, little flock. I love it when he kind of condescends there. It's like, not only are you a flock, but you're a little flock. That's two rivers. Fear not, little flock. Don't be afraid, little one. I know you've got little faith when you have this anxiety and this worry. But don't be afraid. I'm your father. And because I'm your father, you have inherited the kingdom. I've given you the kingdom. And then notice the imperative. Then notice that follows the indicative. He comes and he says, the indicative is, don't be afraid. You're mine. You're my flock. And I'm a good shepherd. I'm going to feed you and clothe you and take care of you. Don't be anxious like the pagans. They don't have a father. I get that. They need to be afraid of the future. But you, you're my people. You're my little flock. Run to me. And then what happens with that indicative that I have God as my father? I'm a, I'm a royal son. You're a royal daughter. I'm in the kingdom. Then he says what? Sell all your possessions and give them away. It ought to make you so crazy, extravagant, generous. This is like, yeah, I'm going to give it away. Well, are you crazy, says our world and society? No, I'm a Christian. I'm identified by that kind of extravagance in giving because I don't have to ensure my future financially. Are you with me? That is what is happening here, the sower's gospel. If you look, the very last verse here of chapter 9 is... Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, commentaries, scholars have looked to this and they've gone both ways. They've said, obviously, the person who is going to sow with their tithe and with their offering and with their alms, the person who's going to be cheerfully generous, who's free to give without fear of the future, that there, as Paul says in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way. And that's not the prosperity gospel. 
It's not the prosperity gospel that says the more you give, the more God will give you possessions and treasures and resources. No. We believe in the gospel gospel, not the prosperity gospel. The gospel gospel is this. The more you give, the more your heart is being transformed, the more you understand and the more you, you appreciate the very graces that God has shown to you. In other words, your life becomes richer and richer spiritually and in God. And you're participating with God and what He is doing. And so many commentators and scholars say, that's the inexpressible gift. What is happening to me? How God did not leave me alone in my stinginess or in my fearfulness, but He actually comes and says, be a participant alongside of me. People will, as the verses say in verse 13, it says, uh, or in verse 12, supplying the needs of the saints, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. In other words, the church in Jerusalem will be thankful to God and you. The church in Macedonia, they'll see that you're following their lead. They'll be thankful to God and to you. Uh, God himself will be thankful to you and you'll be thankful to God. So all this thanksgiving is going up. What an inexpressible gift that we should be included in this ministry. But then there are the other scholars. And they said, no, this inexpressible gift is Jesus Christ. As the Valley of Vision says, out of its prayer on riches, of all riches, that heaven gave everything it had and had nothing left to give in giving us Jesus Christ. So that as we receive afresh and anew the gift of Jesus Christ, then our fears are lifted. We receive, and by his example and by his grace to us, his very cheerful generosity and giving his very own life. He who was rich, and this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he who was rich became Poor, that we who were poor and in poverty could become rich. What did he give? Jesus Christ tithed 100%. He didn't tithe 10%. He gave 100%. He gave his very life to us. Do you believe he did it cheerfully? Or do you believe he did it reluctantly? What compelled Jesus Christ to make such an offering, his very life itself? And notice that the Bible, the Bible is not begrudging. The Bible is not begrudging to say that there is a reward. That there is a reward to us. But he tells us that the reward, when we give, the reward is people. Being able to serve and minister to other people such that they're able to come and worship God who has provided their need through us who are open-handed and cheerful. They don't simply thank us. They thank God. What did Jesus Christ get? What was his reward? You. He died and he gave it all in order to enrich you. And what do we do? We worship. We respond in worship. As we have sung earlier, riches I heed not, 
nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us see your cheerful generosity in providing for us Jesus Christ. And as we feast at this table, by his, he set this table, he's prepared this meal and this feast for us. May our hearts be so strengthened that we, without any fear after our life, you who have our heart and are our heart's treasure, may be found to serve you with cheerful generosity by all of our possessions. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.